We're uh, doing uh, selected verses from the 13th chapter of uh, Revelation this morning that begins at verse 1. Then the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had seven heads, and it had ten horns, and ten crowns on the ten horns, each written with a blasphemous name. And one of the seven heads looked like it had been fatally wounded, but then had been healed. And so people followed the beast as they were filled with wonder, and people worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast, and who can make war on the beast? And then I saw, and another beast was coming out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon, and it exercised all authority on behalf of the first beast, and made the earth and all of its inhabitants worship the first beast. And it performed great signs, and even called down fire from heaven in full view of the people." Now this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has insight calculate the number of the beast. It is the number of a man. It is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Last week when Dinah talked about Revelation, she compared it to a work of art. A piece of art that uh, conveys to us a very significant message. And, and I would add to that this morning and say, as a part of a work of art, we could also say it's like, like a story or, or even like a movie. And uh, many things that are projected in Revelation are uh, grotesque caricatures of things that, with which people would have been familiar in their daily life. For example, if you remember the, um, the movie The Wizard of Oz... I remember uh, Dorothy is hit and, and injured as the, the cyclone goes through uh, Kansas. And, and in her vision, as she goes off to another place, the people that she sees are caricatures of people that she knew in Kansas. And so uh, the scarecrow and uh, the tin man and the cowardly lion all are represented people who, uh, who surround her bedside. You'll remember at the end of the movie they had worked on the farm and the wizard himself uh, was part of the man who had who was uh, represented the man who had brought the circus to town, and you'll remember the witch was uh, the mean woman who had been on the bicycle. So all these caricatures were things that reflected life as Dorothy knew it in Kansas. And when we come to the book of Revelation, it's the same thing. In Revelation, there are gross uh, caricatures, uh, there are exaggerated features uh, symbolically, but they are of characters and people that the folks who lived in churches in Asia Minor in the first century would have represented. They would have looked at those features and known uh, who the person was behind uh, the feature. But also, a little bit like the Wizard of Oz, one of the great things the book of Revelation does is allows us to look behind the curtain. The curtain gets pulled back and we see just who's trying to pull the levers, just who's trying to rule the world and, and make things go the way that they want. And so, Revelation basically answers for the people two key questions in chapter 12 and 13. And the two questions are, what's going on here, really? And the second question, and who's responsible? And what's going on here really is this, that God's people are suffering. And as I told you, depending on which scholar you trust, thousands to hundreds of thousands will die. 
at the hands of people who oppose God uh, through the Roman Empire. And so what's going on on the surface is God's people are suffering. But look behind the curtain in Revelation and you see that these people are part of a much larger story, a much bigger narrative, a large picture of the battle between good and evil. And yes, it appears evil is winning at the moment, but plans are already underway. Things are already moving so that good will triumph over evil. And you look back behind the curtain and you see that God wins. And in Revelation 21 and 22, God wins in such a way that the, the new heaven comes down to earth and everything one day will function the way that God intended. And now who's responsible? Well, look behind the curtain shows that responsible for setting the world right is God. And God, working in Revelation, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is moving things to be in accordance with God's perfect plan for the world. But who's responsible for messing things up? Well, that's what we might say, as as, um, Audrey told the children, an unholy trinity. There's three others who are dedicated to just messing things up and oppressing God's people and trying to rule God's world instead of God. And this unholy trinity can... Uh, consists of three characters, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. I thought for uh, fun this morning, we just might look at the identities of those three caricatures and find out who in everyday Kansas that uh, they were living in in Turkey, who they represent, and then see what we might learn from that. First character is pretty easy. It's the dragon. It's easy because Revelation in chapter 12 tells us very plainly who the dragon is. In verse 9 it says, the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, the evil one. That's the first character. What what we see is that behind all this mess that's going on in the world is the evil one. And that this evil one is holding the leash for these two other beasts that will, which we will talk about uh, in just a moment. So, in a sense, it all comes back to this dragon who, from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, that ancient serpent, tried to mess things up for Adam and Eve and continues to work at messing up God's world ever since. And now is, according to Revelation chapter 12, engaged in a full frontal assault on the people of God. Now, we don't need to go into long uh, diatribes about the evil one, but suffice to uh, just remind you that biblically, the evil one is not the opposite of God. God has no opposite and has no equal power. Uh, The evil one, as we are told, is the equivalent of an angel, a fallen angel, perhaps even an archangel like Michael. But that means he has power, but the power is limited and in many ways is exercised by the power that we will allow him to use. But he is, in fact, limited. But the dragon represents the evil one. Now, what about these two beasts? Well, first, the sea beast. Now, one thing you need to know about the sea um, for, for the Jews, for the people of Israel, is the sea is the place of evil and chaos. Nothing good hardly comes out of the sea. The Psalms talk about a a sea monster that God metaphorically tames in taming the sea named Leviathan. There are uh, numerous stories of God controlling the sea in Scripture, whether it's having a fish swallow Jonah and then at God's command spit him out, or whether it's Jesus walking on the water and calming the wind and the waves. The whole point is that place of evil and chaos is subject to God's rule, But it doesn't change the fact that for uh, the early Jews, the sea was 
uh, a place of terror, they were very much afraid of it. Uh, scholars estimate that even in Jesus' lifetime, we know he called five fishermen to follow him, but scholars estimate in Jesus' lifetime there were no more than 12 to 24 fishermen in all of Israel. Not many people did it. And in fact, if it's a beautiful day like today and you go to the Sea of Galilee, I assure you, you will not see a jet ski. They still are not people who play on the water. The water is a place of terror. In fact, Revelation says that when God sets everything right, one of the things that will happen is the sea will be no more. And it doesn't mean that God is against people going out and enjoying the lake or or going out to uh, uh, the beach. What it means is the place that can create and churn up evil will one day be silenced. So the first thing you need to know is it's not surprising to have a beast come from the sea because everything bad comes from the sea. But you need to be reminded of this. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The major city in the entire world and certainly the major city of Asia Minor is called Ephesus. There are two ways into Ephesus. One is by sea. One is by land. And in their history, very recent history, in one of his advents where the emperor uh, claims to be worshipped as God and wants to be worshipped as God, so he comes into town and forces people to worship as God. In his advent in Ephesus, what the emperor Domitian did, who I believe is the emperor Revelation, is he stood with one foot on the gangway and then one foot on the shore and proclaimed himself ruler of the sea and of the land. And everybody who is in Ephesus reading the book of Revelation remembers that. That this beast claimed a power that belonged only to God. If you don't believe me, read a little further and it says this beast had seven heads. Or was it eight heads? Because one of them appeared to be wounded and yet grew back. Now you can check me on this. Go home after the sermon. Well, you might want to eat first. But go to Wikipedia and look up the Roman emperors and here's what you will find. From Domitian, who I believe is the emperor of Revelation, 81 to 96 he ruled, all the way back to Augustus Caesar, there are eight emperors. Now, that's not counting one year where four people fought for the throne and none of them really got it. Uh, But eight major emperors. One of the eight was reported dead but came back to life. His name was Vespasian. He was laying siege on a zealot uh, stronghold. Uh, about 70 A.D., a little before that, in a place called Gamla. He got injured by the Jews defending the fortress. They carried him off the battlefield, thought he had died. But he didn't die. And when he recovered, he eventually ended up back in Rome as emperor. His fatal wound had healed. Maybe that's what we're talking about. Or maybe we're talking about another guy. His name was Nero. You can find his picture or rendering of him on the front cover this morning. Uh, Nero, famous... Uh, for being a terrible emperor, uh, wanting to be God, and, uh, of course, known for um, setting fire uh, to Rome. But one of the things about Nero is he was really bad, so when he committed suicide, the rumor was he's not dead. We only think he's dead. He's actually hiding in another country, biding his time, and he's coming back. Now, that may sound fantastic to you, but when I was in second and third grade, I remember in elementary school, hearing people telling me that Adolf Hitler was alive and living in Argentina. And he was coming back at the right time. That happens. But others saw it a different way. They saw the current emperor, Domitian, as so evil, so wicked, he could only be Nero reincarnated. Well, which, you know, whichever theory you buy into, there are eight rulers 
But really only seven, in a sense, because one gets counted twice. And so it seems fairly clear to many commentators that the sea beast is actually either the Roman Empire or the emperor himself who demands to be worshipped as God. Now what about this land beast? Uh, He seems to be a local boy. Uh, He comes from the earth, but his job, if you look at it, is pretty clear. He's in charge of making sure everybody worships the sea beast as God. That's his whole deal. Make sure the sea beast gets worshipped. And as part of that, he oversees the worship. He forces people at the point of death to worship. And he can perform some magic tricks on the side, including making fire come down from heaven. Well, here's what we know about that part of the ancient world. That when Domitian decided he wanted to be worshipped as God, the place he started was Ephesus. And Ephesus was so thrilled because of what it would do for the economy and their relationship with the Roman Empire, they said, we'll build you not one temple but two, one by the harbor and one by the land entrance. And they started a religion, a cult to worship this emperor as God, and they appointed somebody to be in charge of it. Now, I don't know his name, but his title was the Asiarch. In other words, in all of Asia, he was to make sure everybody worshipped the emperor. And we know that in many temples, they had tricks. They could make statues talk. They were very good at smoke and mirrors. They could make fire come from the top of the temple uh, down in the presence of all people. And so, again, we see things that the people would have seen. And what commentators tend to believe is that this land beast is the religious leader, the senior pastor, in a sense, uh, the leader of the cult that's going to make everybody worship the emperor's God, who is the sea beast. Well, if you don't believe me, there's this one other clue. And that is that this beast has a number. And the number is 666. And as Audrey drew it up for the kids, you saw that God, if God had a number, it would be 777. A trinity of perfection. And one of the things we know is that, that the number 666 then becomes an unholy trinity, a trinity of imperfection, a trinity of someone who wants to claim what rightfully belongs to God. The worship belongs to God they want for themselves. So symbolically, anyone trying to usurp God in our world or in your life, they're a beast in the number 666. But there's more. The Romans had Roman numerals, you know that. Later, Arabic numerals came into play. But what about the Jews? The Hebrews didn't have uh, numerals like that. So they had to have their alphabet. Each one of them stood for a certain number. So when they did math or accounting or whatever they did, they used the letters of the alphabet in place of numbers. So out of this came a practice that a person not only had a name, but they had a a numeric value to their name depending on the values of the alphabet. So whoever this beast is, if you add up all the letters in his name, it comes to 666. Now, now this is not a slam dunk. It's pretty clear among most scholars, but it's not a slam dunk for this reason. The alphabet is Hebrew. The name is probably a Latin name, and it gets translated through the Greek. So there are some corners you have to turn and navigate. But what seems very clear to those who who, uh, know the numeric values that the Hebrews used in their writing and in their counting is that uh, if you add up 666, you can get these two words. The two words are Neron, N-E-R-O-N in English, Caesar. Neron Caesar, and it adds up to 666. Remember, many people thought Domitian was so wicked that he was Caesar reincarnated. 
It's possible. But there is this one thing. If you, if you go home and you look at the footnote in your Bible, it will say many texts say the number's not 666, but it's 616. Well, what is that? Well, we know this, that in the Hebrew alphabet, the uh, value for the letter that we would translate in, nun, is 50. So subtract 50 from 666, you get 616, and you get, drop an N, and you get Nero Caesar, as opposed to Neron Caesar. It seems fairly clear. Except, one of the interesting things is, if you take the title of the person who is running this cult, forcing people at the point of death to worship the emperor of Rome, his title is Asiarch. And if you add up the Hebrew values of that name, you get the total, doesn't surprise you, 666. You, you kill two beasts with one number. Sea beast, land beast, whoever is trying to take the worship that rightfully belongs to Jesus and take it for themselves or for someone else, they are a beast. Well, what does it mean for us? Having done all the research and thought about it and looked at it, I wanted to share with you three observations. The first one is this. I don't mind if you try to calculate numbers and figure out who the beast might be uh, today. I mean, have at it. But don't forget that there were some pretty good candidates in the first century. While you're still looking down the road to see if somebody else is 666, it's helpful to know that at least there were two good candidates for 666 when Revelation was written. The second thing is this. You might uh, realize that there are probably better things to do with your time than to try, to try to add up the numeric values of people's names. First of all, you and I are probably doing it in English, and we've got to figure out some system to make it work, um, because we don't really probably know these people's name, what, what it would be in Hebrew. But you can do that if you want. When I was in graduate school at Duke, and this is before personal you know, laptop computers and there was a guy who had figured out an English numerical value system, and we came in one morning, and he had written all over the board in the classroom, and he had gotten the professor's name to equal 666. <laughs> you could do that. And you can work out some sort of system where Hitler is 666, or Gaddafi is 666, or Hussein was 666, or the politician you like the least is 666, or the manager whose baseball team beat yours in the World Series. I mean, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can do all sorts. But I don't think that's the best use of your time. Now, I am not saying that means there are no beasts. Not at all. I'm saying that a beast is anyone, land or sea, who claims what rightfully belongs to Jesus himself. And so when I look for beasts, I don't look for numbers so much anymore. I look at my life and I say, is there anything or anyone who is more important to me than Jesus himself? Is there anything in my life that is claiming what rightfully and first and foremost belongs to Jesus? If so, I've got a beast. And I am so much less interested in the beast that lived 2,000 years ago and the beast that might come in 30 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 years from now than I am in the beast that's closer by. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, said this, If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. 
if Jesus is Lord, then Aphrodite, the goddess of love and romance, is not. If Jesus is Lord, then Mars, the god of war, Ares, is not. If Jesus is Lord, then, then Hestia or Vestal, whichever name, the goddess of the happy home and the good family, is not. If Jesus is Lord, then Mammon or money is not. There is only Jesus. And anyone that wants to take or anything, his place in my life, is a beast. So I quit looking for beasts long ago, and I quit looking for beasts out in the future, and instead I'm alert for the one that's knocking on my door.